You're listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is a replay from the virtual live broadcast series titled Women's Health 2020, Beyond the Annual Visit, provided by Omnia Education. Before beginning this activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives. Hello, all. Happy to invite you today to join us at the Women's Health 2020 Beyond the Annual Visit. I'm Dr. Stephen Cohen, and my guest today is Dr. Thomas Wright. Hello. Glad that everybody could join us today. Just a little background. I am a a faculty member at uh, SUNY Upstate Medical Center in Syracuse, New York, and Dr. Tom Wright is Professor Emeritus of Pathology and Cell Biology at Columbia University in the great city of New York. I'd like to review the learning objectives today with you. Today, we're going to discuss the current updated recommendations for cervical cancer screening. We're going to describe the unmet needs associated with current uh, screening. We're going to explain the diagnostic benefits provided by the novel dual-standing cytology in cancer screening. And we're going to formulate strategies that maximize the diagnostic accuracy of this new triage in clinical screening. My question for you, Tom, is that there's been a recent update to cervical cancer screening guidance from the American Cancer Society. Could you provide the audience with your thoughts on this new update and what the impact on clinical practice will be? I'd be delighted to, Steve. Cervical cancer guidelines have been changing a lot mainly due to the availability of new data from large clinical trials around the world. Only as far back as in 2012, the American Cancer Society, the ASCCP, and the American Society for Clinical Pathology came out with guidelines. And back in 2012, it was felt that cervical cancer screening should begin at age 21 and clinicians should perform cytology alone every three years from 21 to 29. Beginning at 30 to 65 years of age, co-testing, that's both a PAP and an HPV, were recommended every five years as a preferred screening strategy. In addition, if you did not have co-testing, you could do cytology alone every three years as an acceptable strategy. Only as far back as 2012, primary HPV testing was not recommended for most clinical settings. So let's move to 2018. That year, the United States Preventive Services Task Force came out with new guidelines, and they recommended that for women 21 to 65, that you use cytology at three yearly intervals from age 21 to 29. Once you hit 30, you should screen every three years with either cytology alone every five years with HPV primary testing or every five years using co-testing with both a PAP and an HPV. So let's turn to today. This year, the American Cancer Society came out with their new guidelines. They've raised the screening age from 21 to 25 years of age, largely as a function 
of the widespread HPV vaccination we have in the United States. They then recommended, and this is a big change, that women 25 to 65 should be screened using primary HPV testing every five years. If primary HPV testing is not available, screening could be done either with a co-test every five years or a pap test alone every three years. So big changes. HPV primary screening is now recommended. So Tom, th- this seems like quite a big change um, to to the practice, the way we've been practicing. We were a little slow in updating the last change, and this is even a greater change to switch, actually reverse the cytology with uh, reflex HPV. So maybe you can tell us the world background uh, in this situation, what others in the world are doing, and convince us that um, this is uh, uh, the change that should be made. Absolutely. The U.S. is one of the only countries in the world which actually adopted co-testing. Most countries remained using cytology alone because they felt that doing both tests was wasteful, it was expensive, and they didn't think it gave a lot of benefit. But over the last, oh, 10 years, there have been numerous large clinical trials around the globe which have clearly documented that HPV primary screening gives better protection against cancer than does cytology, and it can do it at a reasonable cost. So over the last five years, many countries have adopted primary HPV screening. That's the United Kingdom, the Netherlands, Australia, and Sweden, to name just a few. So I think it's reasonable based on the data for the United States to move to using primary screening. But you're right. It was approved first in 2014, and there's been very little uptake of HPV primary screening in the United States. However, I'm pleased to note that Kaiser Permanente in Northern California is in the process now of switching their entire screening program to HPV primary screening. So we're, we're all very happy with most of our HPV, uh, most of our pap smear results, HPV results. Most of it's straightforward. Most of us know what to do, whether we're in gynecology or primary care or other specialties. But there are some challenges and some unmet needs with some of these results that we're not really sure what we should do with it. It seems to be confusing to us. Maybe you could review some of the um unmet needs and screening results that are inconclusive. The real problem, once we switch over to HPV primary screening, or co-testing for that matter, is the number of women with abnormal screening results. So our big problem with cervical cancer screening is how do we handle all these women with abnormal screening results? Clearly, requiring HPV positivity for women with ASCUS before we send them to Colpo, that helps. Doing genotyping for 16 and 18, that helps. But there are a lot of women with 12 other HPV genotypes which require triage. So that's our problem. We really need to reduce the number of colposcopies that we perform. How will we do colposcopy on the patients that need it? And yet, avoid it or delay it or postpone it in those that don't? 
It's really a process. We are getting better at determining individual risk based on combinations of screening test results. Ever since the original 2001 consensus guidelines for managing women with abnormal screening results, we have used risk to determine how do we manage. The bottom line here, or the fundamental premise, is that women with the same risk of SIN3 or greater, irrespective of what combination of test results gives them that risk, should be managed equivalently. We now, in the 2019 ASCCP guidelines, have formally incorporated risk-based thresholds for how we manage a woman. And we also have developed a new app the ASCCP has, which incorporates these risk thresholds. This slide shows the 2019 risk thresholds, and there are six of them. This is based on the risk of having a SIN3 or greater lesion. If a woman has a 60% or higher risk of having SIN3 or greater, she should have expedited treatment. If her risk is 25 to less than 60%, she should have treatment or colposcopy. Once her risk drops to 4 to 24%, she should be sent to colposcopy. Under a risk, though, of 4%, and here we're talking about the immediate risk of less than 4%, she should have retesting at one year. If her risk gets under 0.55% over a five-year period of time, she then gets retested at three years. And once her risk drops to under 0.15%, we can rescreen at five years. So that gives us the information on how the society actually developed those guidelines. It's not just picking a, a abnormality and assigning a, a follow-up time to it. It actually is based on the risk of developing CIN3. And so that clears that up. But adding on to that, maybe you can give us some information. Can, is there anything new besides new guidelines using old data? Is there anything new that we might be able to do to uh, reduce some of that uncertainty uh, about these uh, patients uh, when the pap smear comes back a little confusing. We are moving into a new era, Steve, where it really isn't the pap smear which is going to drive how you manage a woman. It's going to be a combination of various test results, one of which may be the pap. There are a lot of new molecular markers coming out. We're talking about extended genotyping. That's genotypes other than 16 and 18. We're talking about new methylation markers, which will identify which women are at greatest risk. And we're also talking about dual staining, which is combining KI67 and P16 on a cytology specimen to look at an individual's risk. It's clear that cytology isn't very good at triaging HPV-positive women. HPV 16 and 18 genotyping is better, but we know that more than half of SIN3 lesions have one of the 12 other genotypes. So what we need to do is try and develop either new tests or new combinations of tests 
which give us a very high negative predictive value. So it will identify almost all cases of sin three or greater and a very good positive predictive value. So we don't send many women to colposcopy unless they have a sin three or greater lesion. Tom, can you show us what the staining looks like? Sure. This is P16 staining. It's immunohistochemistry, and this is a CIN2 lesion. And on the left-hand side of the slide, you see the standard H&E staining. And on the right-hand side, you can see the immunohistochemistry and the dark brown staining, which is localized to the base of the lesion strongest, but it does extend all the way up, shows that this is P16 positive. Based on histology, it's an SIN2 lesion, but the P16 confirms it. Now, pathologists have been using this for over 10 years to interpret cervical biopsies. And most people in the audience have probably gotten ATH reports, which have said P16 positive. What's different, though, is that when we talk about using P16 to triage abnormal test results for screening, we are moving from histology to cytology. When we use P16 staining with histology, you have the architecture of the lesion. So I can say on that slide we had before, sure, there's diffuse block-like staining of the basal and parabasal layers of the epithelium, so it's clearly P16 positive. The problem when we go to cytology is that in services which do not have any abnormality at all, I get individual P16 positive cells. So if individual P16 positive cells are show, show up in the cytology specimen, is it really from a P16 positive lesion or is it a normal cervix and I just happen to get a couple P16 positive cells? So we overcome this limitation of a lack of architecture by using dual staining, both with P16 and KI67. That would help us know, but I'm just kind of curious how it's going to help us triage. That's a great question, Steve. Not clear is how does KI67 staining help us interpret the P16? This cartoon really helps us understand what's going on. When a cell overexpresses P16, normally that cell is in a state of cell cycle arrest. When a cell normally expresses KI67, the cell is normally proliferating. So we're in cell cycle progression. These are mutually exclusive states. So if a cell both overexpresses P16 and expresses KI67, it indicates that we've got cell cycle deregulation. And that's a hallmark of a transforming HPV infection because normally you should never see a dual stain cell unless there's a CIN lesion present. How many women will be dual stain positive and how many of those will have disease and how many will not? And for that, I want to show you some data 
from the impact trial, which we recently completed. Before I do that, these are pictures of dual stain positive cells. What this does is take away most of the subjectivity that we have when we evaluate cervical cytology. It makes it very objective. It's either got a red nucleus and a brown cytoplasm, or we don't care about that cell. Pretty clear cut. We aren't using any morphology at all. We're merely using the staining pattern. So, so th this is this is very interesting and much more. It seems like much more objective and defined. Um, obviously, there'll be you know exclusions, but this seems like it's a really quantifying um, something that was very subjective for a long time. It is, and I think it's going to be certainly the addition of P sixteen for histology is a milestone for pathologists. We have a very bad performance in evaluating CIN2. And now you can be just as good as I am in evaluating CIN2. It's either brown or it's not. It's pretty simple. Uh, could you give us a little more data on the impact study that came out? Sure. The impact study enrolled about 35,000 women they had a GYN exam. They got HPV testing with 1618 genotyping. And we did dual staining on all of the cytology specimens. About 5,000 women, slightly over 5,000, were HPV positive, And they all got sent to colposcopy with multiple biopsies. Here we see, in this slide, the performance of dual staining versus the performance of cytology in a primary HPV screening population. That's women 25 to 65 years of age. This slide is restricted to women with one of the 12 other HPV genotypes, not 16 or 18. And you can see that the sensitivity of dual stain is much better than that of PAP. It's 19.1% higher sensitivity than the sensitivity of a PAP for detecting SIN3 or greater. Specificity is a little lower. Positive predictive value is about the same. But look at one minus the negative predictive value. That's how much disease is left behind after an individual who's got HPV, 12 other positive has either a negative dual stain or a negative PAP. Dual staining reduces the disease which is left behind after a negative triage test by 50%. So that's a big deal. Yes, it is. And the sensitivity is really game-changing. If you look at here in a screening population for women who've got HPV 16, even for those women with 16, we have disease left behind after a negative PAP. 8.7% of the women will have SIN3 or greater once they have a negative PAP, if we use PAP to triage them. If you use dual stain, you knock that number down to 3.6%. And you can see the difference in sensitivity, 94% versus 786 
So, Tom, as I understand it, um, these stains won't be done automatically by uh, pathology, cytology departments, that you, you might have to request them in some situations. And maybe I'm wrong, but you can maybe bring us up to speed on that. Um, what is the indication for adding stain to the HPV? Will it be a reflex type of thing that we'll be asking for? It will be. It will be very much like you probably have a standing order to use HPV in every woman with ASCUS over a given age, 25 years and older. You will be able to request dual staining in a similar situation. And the FDA gave dual staining, which is Syntec Plus Cytology is the commercial name of it, to be used in primary screening in women who've got 12 other HPV-positive genotypes to determine their need for referral to colposcopy. And it can also be done in the same population of screening women for those who've got 16 and 18. All of those women are going to go to colposcopy anyway, but the dual staining results will be used in conjunction with a physician's assessment of patient screening history and other factors to determine how they're going to manage those patients. So this is really going to be helpful to uh, separate that group that we've been doing colposcopy on that maybe don't need colposcopy or at least don't need it immediately. We'll be able to exclude that group, follow them, but exclude it uh, from colposcopy. Is that, is that an accurate assessment of what you just said? It is. It's a very good assessment. Well, Tom, um, you've given us great information on what this testing is and who it's indicated for and what it's going to do. Maybe we can help our audience by giving them examples of a couple of patients that they might want to think about this dual uh, staining um, and, and having it on their radar screen. Can you give us a couple of examples of who you would order that on? Sure. One example is when you're co-testing, which many clinicians are going to continue to do for quite a while, I suspect. This is a 35-year-old, no previous history. Her cytology came back as negative, and her pap test came back as positive for 12 other HPV genotypes. Uh, you could request dual staining, and then it gets done. The lab calls it positive, and you would recommend a colposcopy for this patient based on this algorithm, which is the FDA-approved dual-staining algorithm in co-testing. She would be down in the middle layer. She's got negative cytology. She's HPV positive. She's got 12 other. You would dual-stain her. If she's dual-stain positive, she goes to Colpo. If she's negative, you tell her to come back in 12 months. It's also recommended that you do dual staining women who've got HPV 16 and 18, even though we know those women are going to go to colposcopy anyway, we know that if they're dual stain positive, they've got a much higher risk. In some of the studies, over 50% of those women who are dual stain positive with HPV 16 have SIN3 or greater lesions. Very elevated risk. We all see a large group of that other group, you know, and we know in that other group, there are some bad players and some not so bad players. So to me, this, this is a major breakthrough 
for who should I perform a colposcopy on at least right away? Maybe and, and it would and the reverse. Those people who I say, oh, you don't have to come, you can come back in a year, but maybe shouldn't be. Maybe even though they're in the other group, may not, may maybe have to have a colposcopy sooner than that. So I think it helps me triage much more accurately in both directions. I think that's a really important. Uh, this is really important and a, a significant advantage. Yes, and in Kaiser, they recently completed a large study, and they found they could reduce colposcopy by almost a third in HPV primary screening by using dual staining. And that's what the second case I wanted to show very quickly at the end of this presentation is a primary screening case. 47-year-old, a woman with a known history of SIN23. She had a leap a couple of years ago, and she comes back as HPV-16 positive. Clearly, you're going to do colposcopy in this patient, but dual staining was performed, and the dual staining was positive. So on the combination of the results, HPV-16 positive and dual staining positive, she's at a high enough risk that she could have either colposcopy or treatment. And after discussing it with the patient, you decide just to go immediately to a leap. And this is that algorithm. Dual staining and primary screening. If you've got 12 other positive HPV, you do dual staining. And again, if she's positive, she gets colpo. If she's negative, she gets followed up in 12 months. But you also dual stain the 16, 18 positive and if she's positive, you use the results in conjunction with the clinician's assessment of patient's history and risk factors. So I think this is going to be very useful to you, Steve. Yeah, it, um, you know, I was thinking, well, it's good for ASCUS, but, it, but actually it's good for, it really gives us more insight into the individual patient, not so much the group of patients with that disease. So let's just break that group down uh, more infinitely. I think that's that's really helpful. It's all personalized medicine. Um, I'd like to thank you for coming and joining us today and describing what's gone on under the, again under the radar, which which we as clinicians weren't really aware of. Uh, but we before we conclude, I want to give you just a moment to if you have any last thoughts or not really last thoughts, but thoughts or, or takeaway messages, um, please uh, add them. No, Steve, I think we really covered the important points. The key one being screening is going to get much more complicated over the next several years with multiple new types of tests. It's got to go to risk-based, and this is one step forward along that pathway. So that seems to me that we'd have to bring you back again. Sounds great. Looking forward to it. That'd be great. It was great having you today, Tom. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, wonderful presentation. You've been listening to CME on ReachMD. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com slash Omnia. Thank you for listening.